You're listening to Adam and Eve, Edmonton's local feminist radio program, on CGSR, FM 88.5, and around the world at cgsr.com. I'm Roseva. And I'm Lisa. And we will be your hosts for this next half hour of Feminist Radio. On this week's episode, we have a spooky theme of feminist ghost stories and ghost spaces. So when we were thinking about ghost spaces, uh, that came up because, Rosiva, you got to go to um, a speaker series in which you heard about feminist spaces that had been abandoned. I did. I went to the feminist speaker series and I saw uh, Rowan Crow give a talk about f- mapping feminist ghost sites and kind of the, the return, the idea of like a ghostliness of returning to somewhere, of um, going to a place that's no longer there, and the yeah, the ghostliness of those spaces. Kind of the idea of temporary spaces within feminism and what makes a space feminist. That's really interesting. When I hear the phrase feminist space, I feel like I should have something more concrete in mind. I feel like I should know what that means. And I find that I don't really. So for me, I start thinking about, is it a space where feminism is explicitly happening and being talked about, like, does it need to be branded or can it happen accidentally? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's what's really interesting about it is that, yeah, when I think about it too, I think of some specific events that I've been to that have been said, like, this is going to be a feminist space and it's made explicitly. And then, you know, okay, this is a space for feminists. There's a feminist event going on. This place is explicitly feminist. And then there's those types. But I think it can be accidental as well because... When you think of feminist space, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, female space. And a female space may be, like... Um, oh, like a women's washroom? Yeah. <laughs> there's there's females in there. But I don't necessarily think of what I do there. Not necessarily a feminist activity. Just a normal, <laughs> everyday activity that I go to do. But I think there's times when it can be feminist. I think of, like, times where I've been in a bar at midnight... And I'm in the bathroom and there's other girls there and we're all talking and it somehow becomes a space of like talking about maybe men like helping each other out, like saying maybe you should avoid this person. They seem threatening or, you know, just becomes a space depending on the atmosphere and the attitude and, you know, depending on the situation. Yeah. Oh, and it can also be a really empowering space too when you start getting that feel-good energy of oh I really like I really like your dress or I really like what you got going on and there's like this complimentary fest of everybody just feeling good about being women I definitely yeah I agree like it's not like someone suddenly stops in the conversation goes let's be feminist now but it just kind of like you just magical atmosphere just kind of happens out of out of nowhere and then you just feel that positive female energy just going around and it's yeah it's a good place to be whether it happens by accident or we label it that way I think we definitely need to like appreciate the spaces that are feminist in our lives and kind of what that brings to us yeah it it also makes me think of like thinking about like a women's washroom as a potential but not necessarily feminist space uh, kind of reminded me of all the locker room talk that's been going around in the media. Oh, dear. Not not to get too deep into it, but <laughs> let's but not. It, let's not. Yeah, <laughs> but it occurs to me that perhaps locker rooms could also be accidental feminist spaces if if there's an ally there who's willing to make it awkward. If there's misogynistic talk and someone speaks up and says, 
actually, that's not okay. Oh, definitely. That is a good point of um, a, f- um, a feminist space doesn't need to be a female space. It can be a space that is gen- that is labeled male, but men bring up feminist views in that space. That could then become a feminist space. Maybe. I'm really enjoying this like whole what it could be. Yeah, there's so many possibilities. Let's make every space as feminist as we can. Absolutely. So, Rosiva, I think we actually have a clip from some of your time there at the speaker series. Would you like to share it? Yes. So Rowan Crow uh, spoke about mapping feminist ghost sites, a queer return to the feminist bookstore. So uh, thank you very much for letting us record that, and we will play you a clip. In the afterword of Topia issued um, the article entitled The Moodiness of Return by Sarah Ahmed. She writes about return, and she says this, and this is a long quote, and help us thinking about return and what it means to return. A return can be a rearrangement of things, one that registers as a disturbance of things. Returning brings up subjects as well as objects that are in the present, but exceed the present. Returning evokes a time that is not quite now, a place that is not quite here. To turn to return is a way of animating our relations to what is around, to what has not gone, to what has stayed put. It is indeed time to return to return. Because what hangs around, what flickers with life when given the fullness of our attention, matters. I'm just like totally crushing on Sarah Ahmed again right here. Um, because of this, um, this really uh, poetic riff on return, as she does in her writing, like really following the writing process. So with Ahmed's words, I turn again to return, to bring a fullness of thought and making to this particular return that I am involved with, because the return does matter. That was Rowan Crow speaking at the Feminist Lecture Series at the University of Alberta. Excellent. I think it's now time for our beloved segment, Radio Eve. Uh, Marco couldn't join us for hosting today, but he did send along a song that fits really well with our ghosty kind of show. It is called The Ghost Who Walks by Karen Elson. This song is about a woman who comes back as a ghost after being murdered by her male lover. This demonstrates the relationship between physical space and personal space, and how women and other gender minorities are often forcibly denied it, especially if we think of feminist spaces, like we were just talking about, as a space that is removed from misogynistic violence. And I love this song because it's about cold-blooded revenge. Listen to The Ghost Who Walks by Karen Elson. Rosiva, 
What's your favorite ghost story? Well, <laughs> what is more ghostly and scary than patriarchal oppression? Am I right, ladies? Totally right. Yeah, I can think of a lot of horror movies and TV shows that I, I've been indulging in for um, Halloween. One of my favorite Halloween movies is May, about like, it's kind of like a female zombie movie where she collects all these different parts and puts them together. That's a really good one. I've also been doing a lot of rewatching Buffy, because you know what? I love Buffy! <laughs> yeah. Female empowerment by kicking vampires' asses. It is, yeah, it's a great time. And these are all great examples that we would love to share clips with you, but unfortunately, we had to go back into the archives to find something, uh, a public domain that we could share with you. And I think you did a wonderful job of finding something that is spectacularly unsettling, to say the least. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I try. The Yellow Wallpaper is a short story by the American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It's written in the first person and describes a woman who's been confined to the nursery room of a colonial holiday house. The story was first published in 1892, which means it's public domain now. Here is the narrator describing the treatment prescribed to her by her physician husband. It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house, and reach the height of romantic felicity, but that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it. Else, why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. John is practical in the extreme. He has no patience with faith, an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen and put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind, perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what's one to do? My brother is also a physician, and also of high standing, and he says the same thing. So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics, and journeys, and air, and exercise, and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it, or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus, but John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition, and I confess it always makes me feel bad. What follows next in the story is the slow disintegration of the woman's mind as she is restricted from outside and intellectual activity. The woman describes wanting to visit others and hates being alone, and yet her husband is keen to confine her to the room. The narrator describes the wallpaper being oppressive, and as the story progresses, she begins to see women that are trapped in the wallpaper. The clip we will play next shows the deteriorated mind of the narrator as she is now driven to the point of madness. 
I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night when it changes so, I have finally found out. The front pattern does move, and no wonder the woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one, and she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then, in the very bright spots, she keeps still. And in the very shady spots, she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she's all the time trying to climb through. But nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. They get through. And then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that woman gets out in the daytime. And I'll tell you why, privately. I've seen her. I can see her out every one of my windows. It is the same woman, I know, for she's always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her on that long road under the trees, creeping along, and when a carriage comes, she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all the windows at once. But, turn as fast as I can, I can only see out of one at a time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes away off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind. If only that top pattern could be gotten off from the under one, I mean to try it little by little. I have found out another thing, but I shan't tell it this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. And I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night, for I'm all so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind, as if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah! This is the last night, but it is enough. John is to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, for really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled and she shook, I shook and she pulled, and before morning we had peeled off yards of that paper, a strip about as high as my head and half around the room. And then when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and they are moving all my furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement, but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite at the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself, but I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I am here, and no person touches this paper but me, not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent. But I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could, and not to wake me even for dinner. I would call when I woke. 
So now she is gone, and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room now that it is bare again. How those children did tear about here. This bedstead is fairly gnawed, but I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out, and I don't want to have anybody come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here, and that even Jenny didn't find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on. This bed will not move. I tried to lift and push it until I was lame, and then I got so angry I bit off a little piece at one corner, but it hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growths just shriek with derision. I am getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out the window would be admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't want to look out the windows even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of the wallpaper as I did. But I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to go back behind the pattern when it comes night, and that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to. For outside you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor, and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall, so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door! It is no use, young man, you can't open it. How he does call and pound! Now he's crying for an axe! It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, I said in the gentlest voice, the key is down by the front steps under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed, Open the door, my darling. I can't, said I. The key is down by the front door under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again, several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that he had to go and see, and he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter, he cried. For God's sakes, what are you doing? I just kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane, and I've pulled off most of the paper so you can't put me back. Now why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. So what I like about the story is the visual metaphor of seeing women trapped and how this woman breaks down those barriers and frees these women, unfortunately, in a very twisted way that isn't, you know, actually freeing women, but in her mind it is. What do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I really liked that visual as well. It, it was certainly one of the parts that I found really quite disturbing um, was was the futility of it because she's so trapped in her mind and so she's ripping down the wallpaper and freeing these women to to no avail at all except to become one. Mm, she has to then, yeah, she is one of the trapped women. She knows she's one of them, and that's what she becomes in the end when she describes them previously and they're um, crawling around, and now she's the one crawling around. So she imagines herself as a trapped woman because 
because she is. Yeah, and now there's no one to rescue her. Like, mm. And it's so, oh, and yeah, the futility is, like there's a timing, like she describes the timeline of like, oh, we're only here for three weeks. My husband says we're going to be out very soon. She keeps on describing it. And then the days, you know, the, there's a countdown. You think, okay, she's, she describes how there's only two days left. We're almost going to move soon. You're like, okay, she can finally get out into the real world. She'll almost be better, but it's too late. It's too late. And she's already descended into her into her state and I think it's also interesting um yeah the role the husband plays because she says oh he's doing it because he loves me so much and yet yeah her his love for her is enacted in a way that is very not so loving (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) when I find someone I love I usually don't trap them in a room with nothing to do for weeks on end usually you know yeah so when we were talking earlier about this story, Rosiva, you had made such an excellent analogy or pointed out the excellent analogy of this woman being trapped behind closed doors with the with our current conversation of mental illness mm, I, also being confined. I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting in how people talk. Now with the discussion of mental illness, people are saying we need to um, talk about it in, not behind closed doors, we need to talk about it everywhere and have a more open conversation and this is just showing that old mentality of how awful it is to just shut someone with mental illness behind the closed doors and to not talk about it and just shut them away. In part of the story the narrator describes how she wants to visit other people and she has these people that she likes and she wants to see them but her husband doesn't think she's well enough to see them which makes you think well Yeah, is that him that he doesn't want, that she's not well enough? Or is it because he doesn't want that mental illness to be seen, the idea of putting it away, locking it away, no one should talk to you? Yeah, absolutely. And and it has been refreshing in the last year, I think, that the conversation has slowly been changing um, in our our present day. thoughts and thinking about mental illness because like you said like this this idea of closing it away and not talking about it the taboo has is still something we struggle with we still very much as a culture just don't want to deal with mental illness and that's what's so scary of this story being in 1892 of how you can almost see like some people are still stuck in that mentality of we maybe let's not talk about that right now. Deal with it yourself. That's your own problem, not mine. And how eerily Yeah. And like and really the story is such a really good demonstration on like how do you expect someone struggling with those things to do on their own, really? We're not gonna give you any help. We're not gonna give you any aid. We're just gonna put you away and good luck. Uh and what I think is really interesting is how this story was born out of Gilman's own experiences. So if you're wondering, like, why does she describe that so well? Well, it's because she went through a similar experience. She wrote a piece called Why I Wrote the Yellow Wallpaper. So Gilman says, quote, when the story first came out, a Boston physician made protest in the transcript. He said, such a story ought not to be written, he said. It was enough to drive anyone mad to read it. Another physician in Kansas, I think, wrote to say, that it was the best description of incipient insanity he had ever seen, and, begging my pardon, had I been there? She says, For many years I suffered from severe and continuous nervous breakdown, tending to melancholia and beyond. 
During the th about the third year of this trouble, I went, in devout faith and some faint stir of hope, to a noted specialist in nervous diseases, the best known in the country. The wise man put me to bed and applied the rest cure, to which a still good physique responded so promptly that he concluded there was nothing much the matter with me and sent me home with the solemn advice to, quote, live as domestic a life as possible, end quote, and to have but two hours intellectual life a day and never to touch pen, brush, or pencil again as long as I lived. This was in 1887. I went home and obeyed these directions for some three months and came so near the borderline of utter mental ruin that I could see over. That is real life terrifying. Yeah, that's not, that's not a story. That is real life women being told only two hours of intellectual activity or else your little woman brain can't handle it. Do you want to hear the good news about this? I do want to hear the good news. <laughs> the good news is after a while she thought, nope. I'm not going to listen to this guy. I'm going to go back to writing and doing my own thing. To quote Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the best result is this. Many years later, I was told that the great specialist had admitted to his friends of his that he had altered his treatment of neurasthenia since reading The Yellow Wallpaper. And she ends on, It was not intended to drive people crazy, but to save people from being driven crazy. And it worked! That is fantastic. Well, I think that takes us to the end of our show. Thank you very much for listening. We've been Adam and Eve. We've recorded our show in the bowels of the CJSR uh, studios located in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. 